Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. The saddest story of the week had to just happen recently. The tragedy struck again in the country as another mass killing occurred. 28-year-old Marine veteran Ian David Long entered the Borderline Bar and Grill in Thousand Oaks, California during a college country night. He killed 12 people before turning the gun on himself. His motives are still unclear. Neighbors say he was known to suffer from PTSD. This story hits a little close to home for Miranda and myself. It happens basically in our backyard where we are in the Los Angeles area. This happened in Thousand Oaks, which is very close to us. Miranda, you yourself have been to this particular bar many times in the past. A bunch of times. So as I was telling you off the air, what's cool about Borderline Bar and Grill and they why they have these events is that they let people who aren't 21 come into the bar. They just draw the big X's on your hands and you can't drink. And I'm the youngest of my friend group. I was able to go out and party with them before I turned 21 and I didn't get left out of things. So that was one of the places that we would go to. And as I said, this is a popular night there, a college country night. And for that exact reason, you know, uh, College students who are under 18, you know, freshmen and sophomores that are just starting out can go there and hang out with older kids, too. And it's just a big place in the community. Everybody goes there. For more on that, we spoke to Chris Ancarlo. He's a reporter at one of our iHeart at one of our iHeart radio stations right there in Los Angeles. He was there on the scene since two in the morning. This happened like at 1120. So he was there right after that, right as soon as reports really started coming out. We spoke to him about what happened there, how the events unfolded. He did walk in. He opened fire. Initially, it appears as though he shot a bouncer or a security guard as he walked in. And then as he came into the actual bar, as is explained by the sheriff here, he took a turn to the right and opened fire, hitting other employees of the Borderline Bar and Grill and then hitting some patrons of the Borderline Bar and Grill. I have talked to several eyewitnesses, people that were inside, and the story's been relatively the same, which is The fact that the gunshots came out of nowhere, there wasn't any warning, and that as they heard the second and third shots, that's when they realized it was going to be another mass shooting. And immediately running for cover, doing whatever they can to get out and help each other get out as well. One person I talked to, he said that out of the corner of his eye, he saw the shooter walk in and raise his arm and fire a shot. And that's when he knew that this was not some sort of prank, that it wasn't an M80 that he heard outside, that this was, again, an active shooting situation. There are other people who what they heard were the speakers misfire just just that first time. But it was that that second pop that they realized, no, this is going to be a mass shooting situation. And that's what's repeated over and over again is just how ready a lot of these people were because they've been conditioned to be ready for a mass shooting situation because this has happened so often. Obviously, it turns into a crazy situation. People were throwing bar stools through the windows, hiding anywhere they could just to avoid the gunshots once they realized what was going on. Yeah, throwing bar stools through the window, but also, I mean, using their, their own bodies to break these windows. There was a woman I talked to. She lives just around the corner. She went rushing down when she heard about the shooting. Her daughter frequents this place, and she was worried that her daughter was there. Her daughter wasn't there, but as she arrived, she saw just this mass flood of people rushing out of the borderline bar and grill. She came across a guy who was a veteran and his arm was just gunshot.
gushing with blood. He didn't realize that he was bleeding. And she says that he told her that he used his arm to break the window and to, and to get people out that were stuck inside. And that's just repeated over and over again of, of people just doing whatever they can to get away from the shooter. And, of course, I mean, we've got to tell the story of the heroism, not only of some of those people inside, but also of these police who showed up. One of the guys I talked to, as he ran out, he saw a CHP officer, and he, and he went to the CHP officer and said, there's a, there's, there's a guy shooting in there, and immediately the CHP officer got out of, out of his car and went to engage. Presumably, that may have been the same CHP officer that went in with Sergeant Ron Helis, who ultimately was shot several times and then pulled out of the bar, taken to the hospital, and pronounced dead just about an hour later. One of the dozen killed is a peace officer, and that's only amplified the morning in this community just outside of Los Angeles. And that's a relatively new thing. It's been in practice for a little while now, but the sheriff's department trains his deputies to enter buildings when there's an active shooter. You know, no longer call for backup and wait until everybody gets there, the thought is you get in there quickly, you can hopefully deter extra killings or, you know, uh, do something to stop the shooter. We've seen these tactics change dramatically. And here's the other thing, too, is that there were off-duty police officers inside. And from what we understand, some of those police officers were turning themselves into human shields to protect patrons that were inside the bar. And so you had this combination of guys who were off-duty, and you had this other combination of these two officers that were rushing in at the immediate onset of the shooting. Because now the understanding is that there's no time for negotiation. There is no time to wait. That every single second may mean another life because every single second is another pull on the trigger. And so as these officers were able to get in there and disrupt this shooter, God only knows how many lives they could have saved because of the fact that they they got him away from the patrons. The Shooter has been identified as 28-year-old Ian David Long. He's a Marine Corps veteran who was known to local law enforcement. He was. Back in April, the Sheriff's Department had been called to his home for a domestic disturbance. And when they arrived there, they found him uh, somewhat irate. They found him somewhat irrational, enough so that they called in a crisis intervention team that those sorts of teams are basically mental health professionals that are also sworn officers in some cases. In other cases, they're just psychologists, but they come in and they're able to evaluate mentally where this person is and determine whether or not this person should be held for some sort of mental health hold for three days or however long it's recommended. And it was determined that he did not meet that criteria by this crisis intervention team back in April. That's the last contact, as far as I know, that police had had with him. Certainly, that's going to be looked at over the next couple of weeks and months as we try to unpack exactly what triggered this guy to go into a bar with a gun. And by the way, the gun was a Glock 21 45 caliber handgun with an extended magazine. Those, by the way, are illegal in California, the extended magazines, and open fire and kill a dozen people. I heard reports of uh, some type of uh, smoke grenade or smoke devices. Do we know if that has been confirmed yet? It hasn't. There are varying witness statements. I've talked to witnesses who say they did see smoke. I've talked to witnesses who say that they did not see smoke. So at this point, it's not been confirmed. Certainly a possibility. And we'll just kind of have to wait for the investigation to, to unpack it. A lot of mass shooters in recent memory had uh, posted a lot of things to social media. With the Pittsburgh shooter, he posted something minutes before he went into that synagogue. Do we know anything of Ian David Long's 
social media history? I haven't seen anything incendiary. I have seen a couple of screenshots of, I think it was a Facebook profile where you know, he appeared to be happy, normal, whatever you want to define it as. I mean, it, it was a Facebook profile. And I'm sure that as people scour the internet and scour everything that will come across maybe a post here or there that would trigger a hindsight 2020 alarm, right? I mean, it, it's, it's tough to manage those things in real time, but when you know what a person eventually does commit, what they're capable of, and you go back and you look at these social media posts, you have that Rosetta Stone to understand maybe what they meant at that given time. Chris Carlo, reporter for KFI Radio, one of our iHeart stations. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, of course. There's just so much to unpack with the story and we had the great report from Chris and Carlo to provide details for the scene and what happened there and how the shooter operated there. But we wanted to expand a little bit on this 28-year-old Ian David Long, a Marine Corps veteran. He got a, a series of awards for his time in the military. Most of it was just, I served or I was there on this mission. None really big commendations for exemplary service or anything like that. In fact, a U.S. official told NPR that Long was not necessarily a stellar Marine. He received two infractions in 2009 for shoplifting at a post exchange. He received administrative punishment. It wasn't enough to force him from service, but he was still honorably discharged later. But I know there was other things. There was neighbors saying he acted really weird. Yeah, police came to visit the home he shared with his mother back in April after neighbors said that there were domestic disturbance alarms going off. And essentially, he was known to the neighborhood to kick holes of the walls of his mother's home. He'd hit stuff with a hammer. Neighbors would wave at him. He wouldn't wave back. He was just very surly. And his demeanor was strange, especially when you contrast it with his mom, who they say is a very sweet woman, but did have a lot of problems with her son. And a former roommate, a guy named Blake Winnett, was interviewed. They lived together in Simi Valley and then later in Reseda while Ian went to California State University, Northridge. And they lived together for about two years after meeting in 2013. And Blake Winnett said that Ian Long wasn't outgoing. He wasn't talkative. He kept to himself. He always had his earbuds in and he was either going to the gym, going to class or riding his motorcycle. And so sometimes he would try to get him to go out and party. And Blake Winnett says that he believes that they went to the borderline barn grill together a couple of times to drink, but that he wasn't a country guy because one of the quirks of this Ian Long was that he liked to go into their garage. And if you've ever been in Los Angeles, Oscar, you and I mm -hmm. live here, we know it gets really hot. Right. And the roommate says that he'd go in a hundred degree day and there's no air conditioning in the garage and go out there and just dance in the garage right. to EDM music for hours. He also liked to take MDMA. This is all from the roommate. This is all alleged, I guess. But he said that Long dabbled in MDMA and that he also took painkillers after going through a motorcycle accident on the freeway in about 2015, and that left him with injuries to his hand, and he started taking these pills for the pain, and after that, he wasn't the same. His demeanor definitely changed. So the roommate says he doesn't know if it was due to the accident itself or the pain or the pain pills, yeah. but he had a character change and isolated himself even more. We still don't know an exact motive, but... As you were saying, you know, neighbors said he was a loner. Maybe he was taking opioids and things like that. So the picture keeps growing of who he was. You know, he did have a Glock 45 that he used in the shooting with an extended magazine. That kind of thing is illegal in California. The Glock is designed to have 10 rounds in the magazine and then one in the chamber. They haven't said what kind of extended magazine he uses, but sometimes there's ones that hold 26 rounds or as many as 40 rounds. One of the things that was interesting is a lot of the people, you know, this was a country night, college country night at the Borderline Grill. Everybody felt really safe there, was having a great time. Thousand Oaks 
in particular this year was just named the third safest city in the United States before this had happened. Yeah. Thousand Oaks has an average of 123 violent crimes per 100,000 people annually. And this is according to a company called Niche, where they rank places to live. There were just five shootings there in the past five years, just five in general. That's crazy. And that's according to Gun Violence Archive. So before Wednesday night, only two people in that town had been killed this year. And we know that gun violence is a huge problem in America. You might have seen this headline around. We just want to tell you about it, give you a little context for it. The headline is Thousand Oaks makes 307 mass shootings in 311 days so far this year. And that is part of that gun violence archive. They're uh, looking at this data. If anybody shoots somebody at somebody and more than four people are involved or get hurt or die, that counts as a mass shooting. So that's really how they do it. They said that in all, 328 people died in these incidences. 1,251 were injured, according to their data. How do they come to these numbers, Miranda? Yeah, the Gun Violence Archive uses a purely statistical threshold to define mass shooting based only on the numeric value of four or more shot slash killed, not including the shooter, Oscar. So they don't use the definition to remove any like subcategory of shooting. So context counts. They might not be mass shootings like this. Might be a guy who like wastes his whole family. Right, exactly. Or, you know, the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. These kind of have similar things. You know, it could be a domestic violence situation where a guy kills the whole family and it might be more than four people that will make it into these statistics. Right. But that doesn't necessarily count as mass shooting. Right. But they're tracking these things. And as I said, it is a problem in America. And I'm sure this, once the dust settles on this again, the gun debate will come up once again, especially with these magazines. They're already illegal in California, but he still had one of those. And California has some of the strictest gun laws in the entire country. That's why these incidents happen so infrequently here, but they still happen. Yeah. We'll be right back and we're going to tell you a little bit more about the victims that we're starting to find out more about. A lot is always made about who the shooter is, what were their motivations, how did they do it, what kind of weapons they were using. And those are all very important details to a story like this. But the most important thing ends up being who were the victims, who were the people that were impacted by the violence of a crazy person. So we wanted to get into that and talk about some of the victims that we know so far. The first one is Ventura County Sheriff Sergeant Ron Helis. He was the first one to go in. He and a California Highway Patrolman went in together. They exchanged gunfire with the shooter, Ian Long. But Sergeant Ron Helis took multiple gunshots almost immediately. The Highway Patrolman had to pull him out. And everybody describes him as a hero. And it shows there was a motorcade that took his body from the hospital to the medical examiner's office. What happened, Miranda? If you saw any of the local news coverage, you couldn't help but miss the aerial shots of his body being moved from the Los Robles Regional Medical Center to Ventura County Medical Examiner's Office. Oscar, hundreds of people lined each overpass of the freeway heading on the 101 to this place where they were going to hold his body. Saluting, holding American flags, trying to do anything they could to honor this man who threw his life out there and paid the ultimate sacrifice to protect people. Yeah, showing support to the law enforcement community for sure. The other sheriffs said that when he got the call, he was actually on the phone with his wife and he said, hey, hun, I got to go. I love you. I got a call. That's the last time he spoke to his wife. He did get to get an I love you in there. But I mean, that's just has to be devastating for his wife to have been talking to him. And just before he went in, he is a hero. If you saw that local news coverage of people all along those freeway bridges, they were trying to do what they could to honor him. 
One of the other victims was Cody Kaufman. He was a 22-year-old. What makes his story so compelling is that, again, if you were watching coverage, Miranda and I live in the Los Angeles area. I live 15 miles from where this happened. Right. And you've been there before in the past? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, many times in my early 20s. And what happened with this particular one is his father, Jason Kaufman, was on the news all morning long because he was desperately trying to find news about his son. Just after 1 a.m., his son's friend came banging on their door. They're saying, hey, is is Cody here? We got separated because they were all there. Obviously, you run away when something like this happens. They got separated and they couldn't find him. They couldn't track him down. His father was crying on TV all morning long trying to find him. He said that he tracked him by his phone, that it was at the borderline bar and grill, but he hadn't heard from him. And then hours later, he was at the hospital trying to find anything for hours. And then later on, he finally got the news. He spoke to reporters thereafter. and It was very, very emotional. His name is Cody Kaufman. The companionship that I have with my son, the the companionship that my son had with his other two brothers, this is absolutely going to crush those two boys. This is not going to be easy for for a very long time. I I I am I am speechless and heartbroken very emotional. And I mentioned about how they tracked his phone. It's such a weird situation with how advanced technology is. You can track people, track their GPS locations, and he found the phone there at the borderline. And the same thing happened with another victim, Elena Housley. Her family tracked her iWatch and her iPhone, and they can see it there at the borderline, but they hadn't heard from her for seven hours. Tell us a little bit more about Elena Housley. She was only 18. Yeah, Elena Housley was 18 years old, and she was one of at least 16 Pepperdine University students attending college country night. She was killed in the shooting, her family members have confirmed. She's the niece of former Fox News reporter Adam Housley and his wife, you might remember, is actress Tamara Mowry. Right. They tracked her by using her tech. They had shared locations with her and they watched her location not change from being at the Borderline Bar and Grill. And they were very active on social media, just reaching out to everybody saying, has anybody seen her? Has anybody seen her? It's a tragedy when these things happen. But man, to be a family member of one of these victims and have to go through hell that whole time, just in suspense, waiting to know it's crazy. Justin Meek is another one of the victims. He was 23. People were calling him a hero because he was pushing people aside, trying to put himself in between the shooter and people on the dance floor. Mm -hmm. Sean Adler, he's a longtime resident of Simi Valley. He was the bouncer And as reports go, he was the first one that was shot as soon as the shooter went inside. Yeah, Ian Long was trying to get inside. And having been to the borderline, I could tell you, Oscar, they check your purses. They check your pockets. You've got to get searched by security before you're allowed inside. So he immediately shot Sean Adler, who had been involved in the local high schools in Simi Valley. He had just opened a new coffee roasting business. And he also did self-defense and technique trainings to students and children in the neighborhoods. There was also this headline that kept coming out that some inside the borderline bar had survived the Las Vegas mass shooting. Then we learned that there was one that did get killed. His name was Telemachus Orfanos. What do we know about him? Yeah, he went by the nickname of Tell. And Oscar, he was a survivor of the Route 91 Harvest Music Festival shooting in Las Vegas last year. And Wednesday night, he was killed at the borderline after being there with a bunch of friends who also were Route 91 survivors. So those are just some of the victims. We haven't received the full list of names just yet. Thanks, Miranda. Thank you, Oscar. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.